The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you have not opened to it yet, we are going to put it on the screen for you because we care. All right, so here we go. We're looking at verse 9. And before I jump in, let me actually set it up by helping you understand who wrote this. This is written by a guy named Solomon. And it's a book in the Bible that is literally it's my favorite book in all of the Bible. Because this guy Solomon, or some may call him King Solomon, Solomon was given an opportunity that no one else in the history of the world was given. God, creator of everything, looked at Solomon and said, hey, Solomon, I'm going to give you one thing. Blank check. What do you want? And Solomon said, uh, he didn't say a fancy car. He didn't say un panco lechon, right? He didn't say some key lime pie like I probably would have. He said, which is so amazing, he had the wisdom to say, give me some wisdom, God. And Solomon lived his life and experienced massive success because of the wisdom that God gave him. He was the king of Israel, and in the time that he was king of Israel, he built amazing things. His army won incredible wars. He dealt with some of the most complex things of their time and yet was successful. He was incredible with relationships. Some may say too incredible if you know his sin and his struggles. But Solomon was a guy that when he opened up his mouth, you say, oh, let me get a pen because I got to write this down. And Solomon, as he was approaching death, getting ready to die, he said, let me put a letter together that would unveil all the wisdom I have held my entire life. Let me put a letter together that will speak to generations of what the best way of living is. And as you read Ecclesiastes, which I encourage some of you to do that this week, it is literally my favorite book. I read it at least twice a year. It's very depressing. <laughs> it's one of those like, oh man, I shouldn't read this, but it's very eye-opening. And so we're going to take an, we're looking at chapter 4 basically when Solomon is kind of like unveiling what is the greatest tool for growth in the person's life. And the greatest tool for a person's growth is other people. So look at verse look at verse 9. This is King Solomon speaking. Two are better than one. Because they have good reward for their toil for they for if they fall one will lift his fellow But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So we're going to be walking our way through that. But before we do that, let me tell you of a a time I thought I was going to die. And instead of dying, obviously, I got a lesson. And a few years ago, before, actually years before I, I, we had our first child, I had a lot of free time on my hands. And, uh, and I decided to use that free time to train for something called a half Ironman. And if you don't know what an Ironman is or a half Ironman, uh, some call it a Tin Man, uh, which is very mean. But it's a 70-mile race. And 70 miles done in one day, all right? This is just go, 70 miles later, you finish. And this race consists of swimming, biking, and running. 
and a whole lot of it. But the race itself, as terrible as 70 miles sounds, that's not the hardest part of this. The hardest part of the entire race is getting ready for the race. And because literally getting ready for the race is almost like a part-time job where every week you're training for up to 16 to 18 hours a week. Oh, running, biking, swimming, ugh, hating your life, right? And so I took on this journey. And about halfway through, I mean, these bike rides that you would go on to train would be up to 40 miles. And you're just sitting on a bike, hating your life all alone. <laughs> and, and then what happened was I talked to a friend of mine who was like, I was just, you know, venting. Like, man, this is really stupid. Why did I even sign up for this? I shouldn't have paid for it already. I want to quit. I'm so alone. This is terrible. And he said, you know what, man? I've, I've done a lot of triathlons. Here's an idea. Check out this website. See, this website gives you a bunch of different biking groups that you can join and that you can kind of sign up and ride with a bunch of people. And I was like, oh, great idea. Why go on this website? And the website has, it breaks it down into the groups in three different levels. You have the C group, which is guys like me just, just trying to sweat out some flung they ate the night before, right? Just, just trying to in some way fit into their clothes still, right? Just normal guys trying to go for a nice little bike ride. And you got the middle group, which is group B. And they're just kind of a little bit more advanced. And then, ho, 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 A group, level A, the guys and girls that are getting paid for this stuff, the people who come with matching spandex on, with names on their shirt, with helmets that go halfway to the back, goggles that say cool stuff on it. These people, they're cyclists. They've got tattoos. They are intense. They are just level A. And so when, when I signed up, and I was super excited. We were supposed to meet at Coral Gables, uh, in Coral Gables at Coconut Grove, and super hype about it. I show up. It's like 5 in the morning, and I come up to the group, and there's hundreds of cyclists, hundreds of men and women in spandex all over the place. It looks like a gathering of superheroes, right? And we're all there, and I pull up, and I can immediately tell that's the C group over there. They're eating candy bars. They're just cracking jokes. Some of them are wearing basketball shorts, wearing sneakers. And they're just, one, one guy had a Huffy bike. Like, I'm like, that's my crew. That's the guys I need to be with. And so I show up and then, but you can tell. Level A. Boy. They're stretching, they're warming up, they're slapping each other, they're yelling, they're hyping each other up. And I just remember thinking, I'm so glad I'm not with them. And so then we all take off, boom, and we're going and about five miles into the ride. You know, me and, me and these guys and girls, we're just laughing. We're talking about LeBron and Dwayne Wade and, and the Miami Heat back when the Heat were something to talk about. Do you remember that? Oh, no. I miss those days. And we're having a great time. We're laughing. He, ha, ha, he, he. Wonderful time. And then all of a sudden we hear zing, 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 zing. Come on. Come on. Zing, zing, zing. And I look over my shoulder and I see an army. Of almost 30 to 40 cyclists, matching clothes, just, <laughs> and I looked at the guy, I'm like, hey, well, there's only one road. What's happening here? And the guy, and one of the guys I was with says, oh, no. And I said, what do you mean, oh, no? Next thing I know, our groups had merged together. And there we are, all of us lazy guys just riding bikes to, to fit into our clothes, right? And there we are merged in with these professional riders with straws that went over their shoulders so they can drink. And all of this intense gear looking like rocketeers. And I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't handle this. And about three miles in, all of a sudden, I hear somebody from my group yell out the words, see, right. 
What do you mean see right? I'm looking right. I don't see anything. But what he was saying was for the C, level C group to make a quick right turn and get out of this torment of riding bicycle with these rocketeers. And so I didn't get the message. And next thing I know, all of my friends or people who are my level are gone. And there I am riding bike with all of these professional riders. And they're yelling and they're chanting stuff. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm going to die. <laughs> and then the lead bicycle rider, the lead cyclist, he yells out. He says, tighten up, tighten up. And then everybody starts repeating, tighten up, tighten up, tighten up, tighten up, tighten up. And I'm thinking, I'm already wearing Speedos and spandex. I'm so tight. I can't get tighter. My clothes don't move. They're so tight. And, but what he meant was for everybody to merge closer together. And so there I am riding, and my knees are bumping other men's knees. And all I can think of, this is how I'm going to die. My abuela is going to get a note saying I fell on my bike in spandex and died on the streets of Miami. And then I'm thinking, okay, cool. I can figure out how to be tightened up. But then the lead cyclist says, up a gear, up a gear. And then everybody, up a gear, up a gear, up a gear, up a gear, all around me. <laughs> what does that mean? And then you start hearing the clicking of everyone's bicycles. And this is the sound of them going to a higher gear because this was us catching speed. And next thing I know, we, I look at my speedometer, which was on my bike, and I saw a number I had never seen before. <laughs> I didn't even know it could go that high. We were doing over 30 miles an hour for up to 20 miles. It felt like I was riding a motorcycle. <laughs> and I'm riding this thing, I'm like, this is actually kind of easy. And then I learned something very interesting that day. I learned about something called drafting. And the scientific term that bicyclists use to, to kind of cause for everybody, the weak riders, to be able to be caught in a suction and be able to be taken up by the wind and ride off the wind of everybody else who's riding faster. And so as I'm cycling, I realize because we tightened up, because we were close, we were able to go faster and we were able to go further. And that's what Solomon just told us. That when you tighten up, when you get closer together, you go faster and you go further. And that's not just true of cycling. It's true of our walk with Jesus. Because the reality is, I, I could have kept riding bike by myself. I could have. I could have made it, right? Just bike riding, all that stuff, and doing my own thing. But when you're alone, you can do it. You might even enjoy some parts of it. But you won't go as fast. You won't go as far as if you do it with those alongside you. Now, in our culture, loneliness, isolation is such a huge issue. See, CBS News a few weeks ago, they came out, they, they kind of reported on some studies that were done by sociologists and psychologists. And what they were kind of showing in the reporting is that Generation Z, which is 18 to 22-year-olds, and the Millennials, which is everybody's favorite generation, uh, which is 23 to 37, these two generations are the most lonely people in recorded history. They have been doing these statistics for up to 60 years, and they have come to found that these two generations are considered to be the ones who are like, I know a lot of people, but I really don't know anybody. 
And what the study even showed is really interesting. You could look it up on your, on your own. Just type in CBS loneliness. <laughs> um, what they found out in the study is that they were making connections to the fact that loneliness, isolation, it doesn't just affect the obvious of your social life. And it doesn't just affect the obvious of your emotional life. But it also has an effect on your physical health. And what they were showing is that scientists and doctors are starting to say, hey, look, we're seeing connections between people who live lives of isolation, between people who say, hey, I don't really know anyone. I am not, quote, unquote, tighten up with people. And they're seeing connections that those people typically struggle with clinical depression, diabetes, heart disease. And they're making all these correlations to the fact that those people who are lonely typically have lower life expectancy. You know why? Because you weren't meant to live your life alone. You weren't meant to live your life in isolation. You weren't meant to live your life with no one who knows you and you know no one else. And my goal in our time together here, I have 24 minutes left. And my goal in this next 24 minutes is to get you to the point for you to see how does the gospel of Jesus Christ transform the very way that we have community with one another. No, transform the way we enjoy community with one another. So look back down in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. And let me read that first verse for you to help you understand. So here's what he tells us. One of the wisest men in all the world says, Two are better than one because they have good reward for the toil. And what he is pointing out to us right there, which is so simple, it's kind of elementary, but yet still so complex. He's helping to see that we're better together. We are better together. We go faster, we go further when we, quote unquote, tighten up. And this has a lot to do with just very, very much who God is. See, because God in his goodness, God in his kindness, when he decided to make the earth, it, it, we see this, this God, this trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, which we're going to be talking a lot about the trinity today. We see this massive being say, I'm going to create all of creation. And when he does this, he creates a human. He creates Adam and says, man, I'm going to take this guy and I'm going to form un macho, right? I'm going to formulate him and he's going to be good. And he looks at Adam and he's like, man, you know what? Adam needs something. And he doesn't say, oh, Adam needs something. You know what? I'm going to give him Ferrari. Yeah. No, no, no I'm going to give him some really good Cuban food. No. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, no, I'm going to give him some more money. No. This is really interesting. He sees Adam and he sees one thing that Adam does not have, and this is what he seeks out to give. And he says, man shall not live alone. He said, man shall not live in isolation. My creation should not be alone. So he gives a wife to Adam. He gives Adam community. He gives Adam an opportunity to be known. He gives Adam another person. You know why? This is interesting. Because Adam, whose image was he made in? He was made in God's image. The very conversation in Genesis is God says, within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, he says, let us make man in our image. And that unveils something very significant. Because in the very image of God being made, we are being told that God himself is in community. That God, even in his very being, is not an isolated single being. 
that God in his very being, there is a father, there is a son, and there is a spirit still intertwined as one, which wrap your mind around that for a moment. But yet they are functioning in community with one another. They are working alongside each other. They are in it with one another. We are made in God's image. We are made for community. So when you step out of community, when you step into isolation, you must understand that you are going against the very instinct that is so deeply imprinted on your being. Now, there's moments in Scripture that are super, I just find them incredible. And these moments where it's almost like, bro, I should not even be given the honor to read this. And there are moments where within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, these three beings are communicating with each other. And it's incredible. And one in particular is John chapter 17. And the reason why it's so profound is because when you watch amongst the Trinity communication taking place, you're being given insight at that very moment to what is important to God. What matters to him? What is significant? What has made the agenda of their meeting? That's a big deal. And in John chapter 17, there is a moment here where it's literally right before Jesus is betrayed by Judas this is a moment where Jesus is in such turmoil in the garden where he's there literally under such stress knowing that he is about to be tortured, knowing that he is about to be murdered in front of his mother, knowing that he is about to have his closest friends betray him. He is so aware of what's about to take place to him that literally the stress level in him is so high that blood is being pushed out through his pores as if it was sweat. And he stops and says, all right, we need, let's, let's get the Trinity together and we need to have a conversation here. If that was me, the conversation would be like, no, I can't. We're not doing this abort mission. But what we see in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 23, we are given complete insight into what the heart of God is at this moment. So look at this. Look how this prayer comes to an end. And if you have time during this week, I, I recommend you read all of 17 because it is profound. But look at Jesus right here in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What Jesus is saying at this point is he, originally he was praying for the current apostles, the current people who believed in him, the current people who were going to go and be sent out with the message of the gospel. And now he's saying, I'm asking, not, I'm just not asking for them. I'm asking for those who are going to believe because of them. You, me, all Christians now. Look back down. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. He repeats it because it's so huge, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me 
and love them even as you loved me. There is so much in this passage. But what we see is a language, a Trinitarian theological language where Jesus is making the claim and making the very clear claim that him and God the Father and the Spirit coexist as one. So for those of you who are like, yeah, but the Trinity's never spoken of the Bible, please reread what we just read. Because Jesus is clearly making the claim of him being one with the Father. And this is actually why he was murdered, because of claims like this. But for the sake of our conversation, we see that what he's calling us to in his prayer and his request, he's saying we need to figure out a way to bring everyone to experience the level of community, the level of connection that we to get to the point where we are one with each other. And that's really cool. But if it ended there with just a prayer request, that's just cool. It's not transformative. See, because it's just words. And haven't some of us just been burned by words? Like, haven't some of us just been like, hey, don't just give me your words. Give me your actions, right? Don't we say that to our kids? Don't we say that to spouses? I want actions, actions, right? I said that to my son yesterday, and I felt really dumb as I talked to a two-year-old. But it goes beyond just words. Because this is the very thing that happens in the gospel. See, because as we talked about, the Trinity in its beautiful unity, Jesus says, perfect unity. Unity so incredible that they appear to be one. But in Genesis, we see them working together, interweaving, intertwining, and creating all that we have in this world. We see all throughout the book of the Old Testament, them working together, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And then we see the Father look at the Son in the book of Matthew, he looks at the son and says, this is my son, as Jesus is getting baptized, and says, I am well pleased in him. We hear Jesus say a number of times, I say what the Father tells me to say, so my words are his, and I do what he approves of me. And we see Jesus speak of the Holy Spirit and says, man, I am sending to you one who is greater than I. And you will see greater things because of the Spirit of God that will rest upon you. We see incredible unity amongst the Trinity. The cross, this incredible unity, this oneness at the cross, it's broken. At the cross, what takes place is you have the Son of God, Jesus, hanging on the cross, brutally tortured, undergoing the very wrath of God, the punishment for sin, landing upon Christ, the very punishment that I, Angel Garcia, deserve, landing upon the Son of God, falling upon him, and his words that he declares in Matthew are so profound. His question, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me, Father? This unity amongst the Trinity at the cross is broken. And the Father turns his back on the Son who's experiencing sin. And the Spirit turns his back on the Son who is getting the weight of sin. And the Son is left there in disunity. Why? So that you can be considered a son and a daughter of the King. 
so that you can be considered a son and daughter of God. So that you can look to the person to your left and to the person to your right. If they follow Jesus, you can say you are a fellow brother or sister in Christ. That because of that ultimate disunity amongst the Trinity, we can have ultimate unity amongst each other. And we can see more of God in each other. And we can grow in our understanding of who God is because the truth is when we're together, we are better. That was the extent that God went to so that we can have biblical community with each other. And there's reasons to why God went to that extent. And Ecclesiastes unveils some of those reasons. And so we're going to take some time and look at three of the reasons why God was willing to go to such an extent. See, because it's more than the fact that we're better together. It's more than the fact that because of the mission that Jesus mentions here of making him known, there's more to it than that. Even though it's one of the big things, there's more to it. So look back down at verse 10. Because verse 10 kind of helps us out. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. What this is helping to see is that in biblical, gospel-centered community, we lift each other up. And the interesting thing about the language that Solomon uses there, it's always important to pay attention to the details of language in the Bible. He says, when you fall. Not if, not just, right? Like, oh, just in case you make a mistake. When you hit the ground. When that sin creeps up. When you fall. Woe to the person who doesn't have someone to pick them up. See, the beautiful thing about what we have in community, we have an opportunity to be picked up when we fall. We have an opportunity to experience someone else saying, hey, man, I got you. Let's get up. Let's get up together. Let's experience life together. Hey, you don't have to stay down. You don't have to stay in your struggle. You don't have to forever be labeled by what caused you to fall. Let's get up. You can't coach yourself. You need people who are outside of you to point things out. And when you live in isolation, when you live with no community, you have no one to pick you up. But in the beautiful community that God gives us, he gives us the opportunity to have accountability with one another. But sometimes we don't experience that for two different reasons. There's two different reasons why we don't experience what God's offering to us in community. And one is that the reality is sometimes we think we're too embarrassed. We're too ashamed to let people know that we fell. We're too embarrassed to show the scrapes on our knees or the, or the holes in our pants because we just tripped up in sin. And so we try and hide it and we try and mask it. And you know what happens at that moment when we're trying to hide and mask our sin from others? We're doing that because we have forgotten something so fundamental to the very nature of Christianity. The gospel. See, because Jesus Christ, he hangs on the cross and he yells out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the Father looks back and says, this is for salvation for the world. And Jesus is saying, this is for the world. John 3, 16, so simple. God for love, so loved the world that he sent his son. This was for the world. Not just for the select few, not just for a small group of people, but for all people. Well, why? 
Because all people are in need of the saving grace of Christ. And this is what we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It's going to come up on the screen. As it tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all means you. It means me. So I have to live my life trying to mask it like if you really don't know that I'm not perfect. You know I'm not perfect. So I have to sit here and try and hide and mask. What I have to sit here and do is let you know what's going on so you can help me get up. And vice versa. Your spouses know you're not perfect. They tell you all the time. Your kids even know it. And you're hiding the fact that you fell. Your knees are all bloody and we see it right now. Biblical community gives us the freedom to say, hey, I need someone to help me get back up. But here's the second reason why we don't make those things known. It's found in Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, 17 tells us that iron sharpens iron. Such a cool verse. Some of you guys have shirts with it. Some of you may even have it tattooed somewhere. It's probably like in a gym somewhere. And like it's such a powerful and, pro- and profound statement. But if I was to grab two pieces of iron right now and have them right in front of you, and let's say those two pieces of iron were, were alive, and just for fun, let's say one of them was Cuban, right? And you start rubbing these two pieces of iron together, what would the Cuban guy say? Ay, 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 para, right? Stop, it hurts. When iron is sharpening iron, when iron is being rubbed up against each other, it hurts. It's hard, it's challenging causes you to realize that you need sharpening and you're not perfect. It causes you to have to be pushed out of something that's comfortable into an uncomfortable place for the sake of you going faster and going further. And so we deny the opportunity to be lifted up in community because we're so arrogant and so prideful that we don't want anyone to know that we're part of that all in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 that all have fallen. And we deny it because honestly it's just too hard and it hurts and all of that is not reason enough to not experience growth and then verse 11 what Solomon does then he then points us to that it's not just this community where we're like like referees walking around saying you sinned right it's not just this accountability only we're not just personal trainers yelling at each other to do more work and to become better Verse 11 helps us see almost like the reality to the heart of the community that God gets, allows us to be a part of. Look back down at verse 11. Here's what he says. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, for us guys to read that is really weird. I'm just going to be honest. Like, I'm not laying down with nobody <laughs> to keep warm, bro. But what the language he's using here is really giving way to the reality of the fact that it's two cold people, two people who are broken, two people who are in a struggle coming together for the cause of helping each other out. And what he is showing is that not only are we better together, not only do we pick each other up, but he is showing that we must care for each other. That we must see each other as so valuable that even though I'm cold, I'm coming for you, man. This is not, oh, the hot person came down and warmed up the cold person. This is two people who are broken. 
Not waiting, hey, I'm going to fix myself up before I come and say, hey, I'm going to be in community. This is coming into the community knowing that not only as I serve you, you serve me. This two-way street. See, in Romans chapter 12, 15, it tells us, Paul tells us, listen, in Christian community, we must rejoice with each other and we must weep with those who weep. We are called to celebrate the good with one another, but we are also called to mourn with each other. This can't happen in isolation. This can't happen when no one even knows your name here. This can't happen when you come to a church and you just sit there and you treat it like it's a movie theater. You sit there, you watch the sermon, give someone a high five, and run to your car. It can't happen. No one knows you. No one knows that you fell all week. No one knows that you're cold. No one knows that you need to be picked up or be cared for. This past fall, my family and I, we, we had a big hit. And in August, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And it was, it was extremely painful for us because of how far along the cancer was. And, and the doctors kept trying to assure us that, hey, this is not life-threatening. But it was just, it doesn't matter. It's terrifying. There'll be moments where I would look at my two kids and just weep while holding them, or even hold my wife's hand and just weep, literally feeling the weight of the suffering of the cancer. And and in that process last fall, I'm gonna be honest, I don't think I would have gotten through that if it wasn't for our church. I don't think I would have gotten through it if it wasn't for so many of you rallying up together and saying, We're gonna we're gonna feed these people. And start a meal train. I don't think I would have gone through if it wasn't so many of you pulling me aside and just crying with me and praying with me. I honestly would have never gone through it if Justin and Dan were not sitting in that room while my wife was being in surgery for five hours and just sitting there with me. I would have never been warm if it was not for the church coming down and laying beside me and warming me up. And it was beautiful, and it was an amazing picture of what it means to be in a church and what it means to be connected to other Christians, what it means to suffer and others say, we're going to come alongside you in any way. We're just going to be there. When my wife was, it was declared that she was cancer-free and that surgery went well and the radioactive treatments went well and everything completely left my wife healed, I went from a moment of weeping to a moment of now celebrating and rejoicing with others. And that moment wasn't just on me, but it was shared. And it wasn't a season where I was like, hey, I can't even talk to you or care for you. It was a season where we now cared for each other. And so many of you helped me in that. Some of you are suffering. And you're suffering alone. And God did not build you for that. God didn't build you to deal with this divorce by yourself. He didn't build you to carry the weight of being a single parent by yourself. He didn't build you for the weight of fighting through this cancer with an empty room. He made you in his image to deal with the burdens and the trials of life in community with others. You need to tighten up. You need to get closer so you can go faster, so you can go further. See, and we kind of give some, some reasons for not doing that. As a matter of fact, no. Verse 12 actually tells us something really powerful. 
See, because there's some of you in this room who this church, this is your community. Like, man, your kids can name 20 adults that are not their family that are here right now. Man, you have people in your mind, man, this is my, this is my network. These are my friends, and it's beautiful. This is where I have my community group. This is where I come to church. This is where I serve. When I suffer, I can hit people up and be like, yo, I'm going through something. When I fall in sin, you got friends that you can reach out to. And man, isn't that awesome? That for some of us, our biggest problem is having too many birthday parties to go to. Whoa, what a joy. <laughs> man, even though, oh, kid parties, oh. Stop inviting me, please. I'm joking. <laughs> That's your problem. But look at what verse 12 closes with. Really, really profound. Look at what verse 12 closes with. And, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. What this is telling us is that when we desire to have community and when we have two cords that are intertwined with the third being God, when God is what pairs it all up together and keeps it tight, it is not easily broken. But once God's stripped from the equation, once God is pulled out, now this cord that once was so beautiful, it's quickly broken. And just as fast as you got that community, just as fast as you made those friendships, just as fast as all that was given to you and you became better together, is just as fast as it could be over. If we strip God from the equation, if we allow conflict to sit in there, if we allow unforgiveness to fester in those relationships, if we allow that one time everybody showed up late to the community group and you just say, oh, not a big deal. And meanwhile, you're boiling inside. If we allow the things that God pushes us to, to be removed from it, you go from being a threefold cord to now just a two. And you just and your community is just a memory at this point. This must be something we fight for. We must fight for community. We must fight to care for each other. We must fight to pick each other up. We must fight to tighten up and be better together. It is not something that happens by accident. It is not something that just poof. Oh. It is something that is fought for, strategically planned out. You get down. It doesn't work out. We figure it out. We're fighting for community. We are fighting to be close and to be better together. And But we give three excuses a lot of times for why we can't experience this. And there's three different reasons why we throw out there constantly, and I'm guilty of it myself. So one of the three excuses that we always throw out there is that it's just, it's just too hard. Oh, it's just so hard to step out. I'm an introvert. And you want me to have friends? No. I want to play video games. <laughs> it's hard. It is. And the truth is, there's nothing that's, that's worth it that's not hard. There's nothing that matters in this world. There's nothing that can add to the beauty of your life. There's nothing that can give you more significance and give you more help that is not hard. Everything that matters is hard. And it's challenging. And you're not alone in the fact that you feel like it's hard. When you sit in your community groups and you sit in a circle, you need to look around and be like, man, everybody, you need to know everyone here is thinking this is hard. It was hard for everybody to wake up on a beautiful rainy day when it was 70 degrees and you're under your comfort and you're not paying for any AC because your house is cold. It is hard to take those sheets off and come to church for everybody. <laughs> it's hard. 
for everyone. But it's worth it. And we fight for it. See, because not only do we say that it's hard, but we also look back to our past experiences and say, but you don't know what I've been through. I once opened up about sin. I once opened up about struggles. And then they, they got gossiped about. And then they used it against me. And they threw me aside. I once did all this. I told people about what I was going through. And no one cared. You don't know what I've been through. And our past honestly becomes an excuse. But what if we did that with other things? What if we did that with food? Oh, man, I went to this restaurant. And I ordered this one thing. It tasted disgusting. So because of that, I don't eat no more. No food. Done with it. Because I had a bad experience with food, therefore I'm starving. Ice diet. It's worth fighting for. And I don't know what the past is, and I know for everybody it's different. I know I'm trying to add humor to it, but I know the past may have stung you really bad. I know a lie. I know some form of gossip. I know even stealing. I know something from your past might have caused you to be like, I'm never connecting again. But don't let the past keep you from fighting for community. And the third one, the most popular one, time. Oh, I don't have time. Oh, my gosh. He's preached a minute over time. We are over time. Ugh. You only watch sports that have a time to it so you know when it ends. Like, we're all fighting for time. I need more time. I'll drive 60 miles an hour to get more time, to get that one place a minute early. I'll text less words to have more time. We're all fighting for more time. And the truth is that, you know what, the reality that we all face is that no one has time for this. No one has it. And yet, there's so many people who are willing to push past the struggles and the obstacles of their time to schedule time for it. You're not the only one with no time. There are people with six children dragging their ways into community. Even though some of the kids don't even have a shirt on, they're pulling them in. There are people with two, three jobs coming into community wearing their uniforms. There are people working the night shift at hospitals driving over here from their night shift just to be in community. Well, why? They don't have time. But they have a drive and they have an understanding for how this can impact their lives. So what I tried to do is we gave you a handout, which is somewhere here. And what you received in this little handout in the bulletin is not what I'm going to talk about yet. I want you to turn over and go to the empty portion that says notes. And here's what I want you to do. We'll close with this. I want you to sit there and take some time either today or later and write down the name of five different people. Five people who you can say will pick me up when I fall. Five people of when a storm and when tragedy comes and you are cold and you need to be warmed up. Five people that you know you can reach out to. If you can't even name two, we have some work to be done. If you can't even name one, we have a lot of work to be done. My challenge is name people that are not family, blood family of yours. And you'll see how the list shrinks. And there will be some of you who can name 20, 30, 40. And if you can, take some time and thank God at that moment. 
because of how he has blessed you. And for those of you who say you don't have time, turn over. What I would love for you to do this week is here's a, a, a breakdown of what a typical week looks like. I would love for you to map out what your week looks like. What's your work schedule like? What's your hobbies like? And really see in there where you can fit this. See, because here at West Pines, we, we care so much for community. We create these spaces called community groups where you can come and gather with other people to enjoy that. But the truth is, you might look at your schedule and be like, I don't have space for community groups right now. And that's the reality of some of our lives, and that's okay. But there needs to be some space for you to connect with others in intentional Christian community because you need to be picked up, you need to be cared for, and you need to care for others, and you need to pick up others. Because the truth is, we are better together. So church, West Pines Community Church, tighten up. Tighten up. We are better together. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the way that you love us. Thank you so much for the way that you have provided for us. God, we do not deserve this. We do not deserve the opportunity to come into a church community and be able to have access to such life, to be able to have access to such goodness, to be able to have access to such people. God, forgive us for taking this for granted. Forgive us for not making the most of what you have placed right before us to eat. God, forgive us for the times that foolishly we have pushed that plate that you've given us and said this is not good. God, may we repent of that and come to a place where we will eat and enjoy the beautiful thing that you've given us here in this church. And God, I pray that this sermon and our time together will drive and bring forth amazing relationships amongst the people in our church. That we will grow in community, that we will grow as brothers and sisters in Christ together. God, that we will pick each other up, that we will care for each other, and that we will see that we are better when we are together. Lord, please help us. God, our community is only a result of you and your work. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will flow in this place and intertwine us together. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954 954- 432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org